Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. My name is Pete Stearns and I'm one of our pastors here. We are in the midst of a series called What to Bring to Worship. And last week, our pastors, uh, Dan and Dave, talked to us about the heart that we carry with us into worship, the attitudes we have when we come into this place, but more importantly, that we carry out with us into a life of worship. Well, today, we're going to transition from the heart to the head, and we're going to begin exploring the mindsets that we have as we engage with this everyday worship. As I've reflected on this concept over the past week, I've been struck by the reality that I have in my life carried with me one of two mindsets as I have stepped forward in worshiping my God. The first is that we worship God in order to have our beliefs, our behaviors, and our practices transformed. You see, we recognize that when we come into the presence of God, encountering him will change who we are. It will stretch our understanding of this world. It will challenge the actions of our life, and it will usher us into new spiritual rhythms and practices. You see, this is the type of mindset that we see over and over in Scripture, God calling his people to this renewing and transforming faith life. But you see, I tend to find myself more in this second type of mindset, and it is not nearly as flattering. You see, oftentimes when I come to worship God, I do so in order to affirm rather than transform my beliefs, my behaviors, and my practices. At some point in our faith life, we've decided that we've learned enough about God. We know enough about his character. We feel fairly confident in our scripture, and so in that point, we are no longer looking to be transformed, no longer looking to be changed, but instead looking to be encouraged, looking to God to affirm the life that we already live. And in doing so, we find ourselves rooted in one place in our faith journey, unable to take a step forward. You see, as we shift from transformation to affirmation, we turn God into a cheerleader. He is no longer our coach. He is no longer our teacher. He is no longer our father. But instead, he is there to give us a pat on the back to give us spiritual ammunition to support those worldviews that we already hold. In doing so, we assume that God affirms our political beliefs. Well, clearly Jesus Christ was a Republican, or clearly Jesus Christ was a Democrat. A few weeks ago, a pastor down in Atlanta by the name of Andy Stanley gave a message on why it's so dangerous to assume that Jesus Christ was here to support some sort of political movement. He says, as a pastor, I'm frequently asked to preach for one party or another. And he says, look, as a pastor, it's fairly easy to write a sermon that is supportive of the worldviews and ideologies of the Republican Party. 
I can pull scripture and story and narrative and I can affirm their beliefs in doing so. But he said, on the other hand, it's just as simple for me to look at the teachings in the life of Jesus Christ to support the democratic platform. He says, it's dangerous to do so because Jesus wasn't here to lobby for one party or another. Instead, he offered us a transcendent understanding of our citizenship, not here on earth, but in heaven. When we shift God from our teacher into our cheerleader, it is easy to assume that he affirms our financial practices. Well, of course, God wants me to have a beautiful home. God wants me to have this car. God wants me to have a boat. God wants me to go on this vacation. God wants me to have a large cushion in my savings in case something bad were to happen. All the while, seemingly ignoring the transformative words of scripture that call us to live so generously that the people around us cannot be in want. When we look for affirmation, we assume that God is a supporter of our dreams and our desires, that, that God is really the God of the American dream. He wants me to be successful. He wants me to have notoriety, to have influence. He wants me to get that job promotion. He wants me to succeed on that presentation. You see, this affirming God, he affirms all of our desires for experiences and feelings. It's a God that wants us to be happy, a God that wants us to be comfortable, a God that doesn't want us to ever experience loneliness. But the reality is, if we embrace this type of thinking, we will find ourselves unable to move and change in such a way in which we point others towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we live in this tension. Most of us can look back on our lives and we can recognize periods of time in which we lived into each of these different mindsets. Times where we came to church hungry to be changed, hungry to grow, hungry to be transformed, and other times where we came just looking for a pat on the back. But you see, today we are challenged to move beyond the tension and to come for a fresh encounter with our God, with the understanding that as we know him more intimately, our lives will have no choice but to be changed. This tension is nothing new. In fact, we see this tension throughout the letters of Paul to the early church. Now remember, the early church is in essence a startup. They don't have any traditions to lean on. They don't have the book of common prayer. They don't have liturgies. They don't have years and years and years of experience to define what their worship looks like. They don't have classic and, and contemporary worship. No, they're just trying to figure it out. And so Paul spends much of the New Testament writing letters to the church to tell them, in essence, what to bring to worship. And throughout his letters, there are two behaviors that seem to carry a theme with them. Two behaviors that Paul recognizes as detrimental to the implementation of Christ's kingdom here on earth. And both of those behaviors are rooted 
in the mindset that these early Christians were carrying with them into worship. You see, many of these epistles speak about this first behavior. For the very first time, the kingdom of God has been opened up to the Gentiles. It is no longer just about God's chosen people, the Hebrews, but instead it is open to all of the world. And so Gentiles are coming from pagan religions. They're entering into uh, this understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they have a tendency to bring with them some of the behaviors and practices that are comfortable to them. And Paul begins to see these behaviors and these abhorrent practices infiltrating the church and the community of God. And so throughout the epistles, we hear him warning the church not to step forward into those practices, but instead to be raptured into this new kind of understanding. You see, the second behavior that he calls out, and this is one that I think we will relate a little bit more closely to and spend the bulk of our time discussing today, is on the other hand, much of the church was built up by converted Jews, Men and women who had read their scriptures that knew the Old Testament, that had been practicing believers of God, that were a part of this this chosen people of God, and they saw the prophecies in the books of Isaiah and Micah, and they looked at Jesus as the fulfillment of those prophecies, and so they laid down their previously held religious views and instead stepped foot into this new era of religion following Jesus Christ. But you see, they too had a tendency to revert back to old patterns of spirituality. And we see throughout the New Testament, Paul calling out these types of believers. And he has some fairly strong words for them. We're going to be opening up to his letter to the Philippians. But the church of Philippi is a a, a rather unique church. Paul went to uh, Philippi kind of on a whim. God steered him that way. It wasn't his intention to go there because Philippi was located in Macedonia. It's one of the biggest cities of Macedonia, and it had absolutely no presence or no Jewish presence in the region. And so when he showed up there, there was no one that knew the Old Testament. There was no one that was familiar with the prophecies. And so he was really preaching to a crowd a completely radical and new message. And so he goes into Philippi and he begins preaching and crowds begin to grow and the pagan worshipers of the god Dionysus feel threatened. And so they begin to beat Paul and they chase him out of the city and he barely escapes with his life and he leaves behind this small crowd of newly converted believers in the midst of harsh persecution, probably expecting for them to scatter and fall apart. But the Philippians don't do that. In fact, the Philippians, though they are persecuted, though they are small, begin to thrive. And the letter that Paul writes to them is a letter of gratitude because they are one of the few churches that is remaining faithful in supporting him with gifts and food and and finances. Even when he's in prison, they, they send their fellow congregants to go and to pray with him and spend time with him. And so he writes them a letter first to affirm them and second to warn them of a type of believer that they have not yet encountered but likely will in the days to come. 
And so we open up to Philippians 3, and we're going to look at verse 2 and then jump into 4. <coughs> Paul says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based upon the law, I am faultless. You see, Paul writes to warn these Philippians of a type of Christian they haven't encountered yet, but one that will surely start to move into the region. A Christian that believes that they should continue practicing the religious traditions of their Hebrew descent while also purporting to claim salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells them, look, I can warn you of these people because I was one of them. I was a Pharisee. I participated in all the practices and the customs. I knew my scripture. I had memorized the Torah. I had persecuted the church. And if you were to hold me up to the standards of the Old Testament, my life was faultless before God. But let me tell you, if those people claim that this is the new way of Jesus Christ, then they are dogs. And this term dogs in English doesn't fully capture the connotation that it would have carried at the time. Dogs were vile creatures back in the day. You would never think to have one in your home. Instead, they preyed on the weak and the sick. They rummaged through the streets for garbage. And more importantly, the Pharisees commonly referred to those that practiced pagan religions as dogs. So Paul, in calling out these Christians that practiced the previously held Jewish beliefs, is in essence calling them pagans. He is saying, though they claim the name of Jesus Christ, there is no place for them in his kingdom. These are weighty words. Well, back in the early 2000s, there was a comedian by the name of Jeff Foxworthy, and he was a self-reported redneck. And he kind of took the comedy world by storm with his, you might be a redneck shtick. Do we have anyone that's familiar with these jokes here? Most of us. And essentially what he would do is he would call out a characteristic in a rather humorous way of a redneck, and he would lay it out there and have this kind of pregnant pause before saying, if that's you, you might be a redneck. You know, some of my favorite jokes that he made were uh, ones like this. If you think a turtleneck is a key ingredient to soup, then you might be a redneck. <laughs> or if you have ever had to finance a tattoo, you might be a redneck. If you have ever been mowing your lawn and discovered a car beneath the grass, then you might be a redneck. Or his famous one, 
if your house has wheels, but most of your cars do not, then <laughs> you might be a redneck. <clears throat> now I say these in jest, but I think to myself, what would be the characteristics that Paul would call out in these dog Christians? What would his jokes look like that would make us laugh for a minute but kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable? I wrote up a, a few that I thought he might tell, and if I'm honest, they're not nearly as funny because A, I'm not a comedian, and B, they hit a little bit too close to home. I think Paul might say things like this. If the best indicator of your relationship with Jesus is your church attendance record, then you might be a dog. He might say, if the only time you open up your scripture is 15 minutes before that Bible study that you signed up for, you might be a dog. He might say, if you think the best way to teach your children about Jesus is by putting them in Sunday school, then you might be a dog. If your deepest engagement in missions is a week-long trip abroad, you might be a dog. You see, I could go on and on calling out characteristics in my own life and recognizing them as fitting more closely to the description of these Pharisees than to the new type of believer that Paul is calling us to. Because if we're honest with ourselves and we look at the, the American church, we reek of these traits of the dogs. And Paul is saying if we are so caught up in these outward appearances of faith, if we are so caught up in our traditions, if we are so caught up in our previously held worldviews and practices, then the Spirit of God is not in us. If that is the case, you are seeking affirmation and not transformation, and yours is not the kingdom of heaven. You see, he continues on to talk about these practices in verse 8. Looking back at, at the practices of the dog, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of our faith. <clears throat> you see, Paul looks at his previous life, a life that was defined by these religious behaviors, traditions, and practices, and he says, in comparison to what I have in Jesus Christ now, that is garbage. And in fact, the word that we translate to garbage from Greek is far more unsavory. It's one of those words that I would probably get a slap on the wrist if I shared with you today, if you catch my drift. Paul is saying if we are caught up in these behaviors that are familiar to us, we are missing out on a life 
that Jesus calls us into. Oftentimes when we read this passage, we read it in isolation. And so we can quickly assume that Paul is not referring to the attributes of the dogs, but instead he's talking about like this earthly gain, this earthly status, our earthly possessions. And so it can be easy for us to say, of course, our our, our treasure on earth will pale in comparison to our treasure in heaven. But Paul isn't doing that. He's calling out attributes that if we were practicing them in the church right now would be glorified. He's calling out attributes that we would likely have a feature testimonial video during offering for. He's calling out practices and behaviors like memorizing the entire first five books of the Bible, of constantly being present in the synagogue, of carrying out the messages and the mission of God. And he's saying those things are hollow in comparison to the life found in the transformative work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In the late 1800s, a young couple gave birth to a little girl. And I imagine, like most young couples, at the moment that they held this child, they fell deeply in love with her. She was their pride and joy. But just before she turned two, she was struck with the scarlet fever. It ravaged her body. But fortunately, by the grace of God, she survived. But as she was recovering, her parents began to notice that she was responding differently to them. She was aloof and distant. She seemed to be glazed over. And sure enough, they came to find that the fever had taken her vision and her hearing. She was now blind and deaf. This is a destructive blow to the development of a child. Because it's through our eyesight, it's through our hearing that we make connection to the world around us. It's through those things that we enter into relationship with others. It's through those things that we learn about the world that surrounds us. It's through those things that our mind is connected to God's creation. And without those things, we are unable to grow and develop. And sure enough, this little girl began to spiral into madness. She would have fits of maniacal laughter. She would have intense temper temper tantrums, kicking and screaming. Her parents didn't know what to do. Their friends urged them to put her in an asylum to place her into an institution so that they could be ridded of the burden of caring for her. But their parents still loved her, and they refused to do so. So instead, when she was about six years old, they hired a private tutor for her. (coughs) This was a young woman. She was a graduate student, and she came out to their house, and she began to attempt to use the sense of touch to communicate meaning to this little girl. And so she would hold the girl's hand and she would spell out words on her palm, hoping that this sensation of feeling might attribute meaning to the outside world for her. 
At first, the little girl was receptive. But as time wore on, she became more and more frustrated by her inability to make progress and understand what this woman was trying to teach her. And so when the tutor would show up, the little girl would run screaming away from her. She would hide out with her siblings. She would retreat to play with her toys and her dolls. Because of her fear of the discomfort of learning, she instead retreated back into the darkness. Well, most tutors probably would have given up at this point, but Anne Sullivan did not. <coughs> she instead came to the parents and said, I think that your daughter needs to be in isolation in order to learn. She needs to step away from the distractions of her life if we're going to make progress. Would you be okay if we retreated together? And her parents gave consent. And Anne took this little girl out to a home in one of their fields. And she began working with her. One day, Anne had a breakthrough. A light bulb went off. And, and she dragged this little girl out to the water well. And she began pumping the water and running it over the girl's hand, all the while spelling in her palm, W-A-T-E. And the sensation of that water running through her fingers and the signs that they had been practicing finally made a connection and the little girl fell to her knees and began to pound at the ground. And Anne realized that she wanted to know what this was and so she bent down and knelt with her and spelled out D-I-R-T. And that day, the little girl that was thought to be unable to make a connection with the world learned 30 words. This, of course, is the story of Helen Keller, who then went on to be the author of not one, but 12 books. She went on to be a renowned public speaker, even though she had never heard the voices of anyone else. She was an activist for the deaf and the blind. And she looks back on that day and she has this to say. Once I knew only darkness and stillness. My life was without past or future. But a little word from the fingers of another fell into my hand that clutched at the emptiness and my heart leapt to the rapture of the living. What a beautiful quote. But also, what an apt description of what call, Paul is calling us to as believers. You see, we, like Helen Keller, are comfortable with that which is familiar. We resist change, we resist transformation, and we would rather find ourselves playing with our toys in a reality that an outside observer would see as desperately incomplete than allow God to mold and change our lives. But you see, Paul says when we are able to humbly lay our lives before God, we will be led into the rapture of life. 
And we will experience this world in the way that we were intended to experience it. We will see the people of this world in the way that God perceives them. Paul tells us if that we want to enter into this rapture of living, it's not all that difficult to do. In fact, he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says if we want to step forward from this life of darkness, from this life of familiarity, into the love and power of Christ, all we ought to do is know our God. And this word know is not a head knowledge word. Instead, it's commonly referred to what happens between a husband and a wife on their wedding night. It is this intimate knowledge of each other that draws you closer and closer each day. It's an understanding of one another that that shifts the way that you live your life. And Paul says if you want to enter into the rapture of the living, as Helen Keller calls it, then you must know your God intimately. You must pursue knowledge of his character, of his presence, of his desires, and of his callings. And when you have a fresh encounter with the living God, your life will have no other choice but to be radically transformed. But you see, the pursuit of knowledge is a little bit convoluted in our day and age. In fact, we have been preconditioned to believe that in pursuing knowledge, we are in fact affirming our worldviews rather than challenging it. That as we pursue knowledge, our understanding of the world around us and people gets narrower and narrower and narrower rather than broader. You see, in 2011, Eli Pariser, a digital activist and author, called this concept the filter bubble. He said that this day and age, we are living in a filter bubble as we turn to a digital world in order to inform our political viewpoints, our understanding of current events. And he says it's dangerous to do this because these social media platforms, these search engines, these news platforms, they are actually curating what you see. You see, he wrote this when Facebook had first launched their newsfeed. And he began to notice some curious things happening. That as he scrolled through his newsfeed and he clicked into different people's photos and liked different stories, that, that suddenly his results were getting more and more narrow. And so he looked into the algorithms and he realized that Facebook was watching and monitoring his behaviors so that he would have the news that he wanted to read rather than what he needed to read. In simple terms, if your friends and family posted equal number of pictures of dogs and cats, but you, like myself, only clicked on the pictures of dogs, the cat pictures would cease to exist on your page. And you see, it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal when it comes to 
which household animals we are liking and watching, but it becomes a little bit more dangerous when it impacts the way that we vote, the way that we understand current events, the way that we love our neighbors, and the way that we understand our God. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's founder, <clears throat> said it this way in support of his newsfeed. You see, a squirrel dying in the front of your house may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. So why would you want to see those stories about people that are struggling around the world when you could have stories you wanted to read, stories you wanted to see? Now, maybe you're not on social media. Maybe you uh, find all your information through searches like Google and Bing and Yahoo. Well, did you know that Google uses 57 different indicators about you to curate your searches? You see, every time you punch something into Google, it looks at your life. It looks at these indicators of, of your gender, of your age, of your socioeconomic status, of your race. It looks at all of your search history, the things that you've read before, and it presents before you results not on the basis of what is true, but on the basis of what it believes you think and want to read. And so we find ourselves in this filter bubble. And all of the thoughts and all of the ideas that seem to resonate with us are the only ones we ever see. And all things contrary to that are forced to the distance. And so anytime we encounter those contrary concepts, it is easy for us to say, how could you possibly think that way? Because it is so foreign to the knowledge that we have pursued. Well, however dangerous they, this may be in our political life, in our citizenship, it is far more destructive when that type of pursuit of knowledge leaks into your relationship with God. Because what happens is you pursue the God that seems to agree with you. And every time you open up this book and feel challenged by it, you assume that you can write it off, that you can gloss over it, that you can ignore it, that you can read those verses that make more sense to you, that you can jump to those words that are encouraging and step past those calls to transformation. You see, it's so destructive because when it comes to this place where we gather together, if we are seeking not a deep understanding and knowledge of God, but rather seeking to affirm our narrow and limited understanding of God, then when somebody says something that doesn't seem to fit with your worldview, you'd rather leave the church than be transformed. See, Paul closes out this train of thought with these words. And I think they have some of the most significant ramifications on my life. He says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself, now remember, this is the founder of the early church. He does not consider himself to have taken hold of it but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
You see, in these simple verses, Paul reminds us that if our God is infinite and we are finite, then we will always be able to encounter God from a fresh perspective. We will always be able to grow more deeply in our intimate knowledge of him. There will never be a point in our faith journey where we can close it up and say, I've got it, I've figured it out, and now I'm just gonna keep living this life. The truth is, many of us right now are sitting in this room and we have somebody in mind. Maybe a specific person or a people group. And we're thinking to ourselves, I hope they're listening right now. I hope those Republicans are paying attention. I hope those Democrats have heard this message. Man, I'm going to send this message to my son. I hope those millennials have put down their devices just for a moment to listen. I hope those older folks are, are paying attention right now. Maybe we're nudging our husband or our wife. Maybe we're waking up our son or daughter that's sitting next to us. And I want to beg you to fight the temptation to do this. Because what you're doing is you're feeling the pressure of that challenge and you're shifting this potential transformation from your shoulders onto another. You see, if we love and follow a God that cannot be understood, a God that is infinite, then there's always more to know. And as we enter into this deep knowledge of God, our lives will be transformed. Every time we meet with God, every time we bring this mindset to worship, we should assume that our worldview and our beliefs will be changed. We should assume that we're going to have to leave this place and, and adjust some behaviors. We need to assume that God is calling us into new life-giving practices. As we come into worship together, let's change our mindset. Let's move from affirmation and be led into this spirit of transformation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today humbled. We admit that it is far more comfortable to seek your affirmation rather than your transformation. But Lord, let us heed the words of Paul that calls this type of mindset, this type of belief as unqualified for the kingdom of heaven. Let us move out of the darkness of our current lives and be raptured into the world of the living because of a fresh and true encounter with you, our Lord and Savior. May we each morning wake up with a hunger to know you better, to dive more intimately in relationship with you. And may we live our lives anticipating that we, you will change who we are and that you will move us from darkness into light.
We pray this in your name. Amen.